how should we handle the Tampa Bay Rays pitcher staff, and why 2021 is such a unique challenge to analyze. We have Nick Pollock of PitcherList here for part two of our starting pitcher preview, next on Beat the Shift. Welcome to another episode of the Beat the Shift podcast. I am your host, Ariel Cohen, and with me as always, Ruvain Guy. How are you, Ruvain? I'm doing great. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. You know, pitchers and catchers now just a couple of days away. Can you believe that? Yes, one week away. For I know the Mets and Yankees are both reporting in one week, and the schedules actually came out, and, you know, you can take a look, see when your teams are playing. Hopefully they'll start on time, and we'll have a full season. Yeah, I've never been to a spring training, but my wife uh, had been taking my kids uh, a couple times in a row, and that was just fantastic where they got to just talk right up to the players. I guess that won't happen this year, so that's a little bit sad, but nice to know that things are uh, back. Uh, Otherwise, uh, how how are you doing, Ruben? All right? I'm doing great dealing with the snow and thinking warm. That's all. Yeah. All right. Well, we've got a great guest tonight. He is from PitcherList. You all know him. Nick Pollock, welcome to the show. What is happening? Oh, it's so great to be here, and so great to talk to you guys again. Our pleasure for having you back. What what's doing? You're you're a, you're a New Yorker. How's how's your dealing with the snow and a little little bit of snow in the Northeast in February? Oh yeah. Um. So <laughs> I haven't um I haven't had the opportunity to go out and really enjoy it much. Uh, I have uh, been toiling away at six that is coming out on Tuesday. So there's Ooh. that plug. Let's just get it out you want, right away. <laughs> want to give a little preview uh, of, of, of what's going on there at Pitcher List right now? Um, every year we do our launch, our new launch of the site. Uh, and uh, this year, um, I don't want to spoil it, um, but we are making a significant shift uh, as to what we do um, at the site. And it's only an addition. Don't worry. We're offering a lot of new things. Uh, it's taken a lot of work. Uh, to create this and we cannot wait to show you so uh, that comes out at 10 a.m on tuesday february 16th cannot wait and hey ariel two days later i get to hang out uh with you at PitchCon. yeah uh, i can't wait for that oh you want to tell everybody uh what uh, what that's all about sure why not <laughs> <laughs> uh four-day baseball uh conference online all all streamed on twitch.tv slash pitcher list we're raising money for feeding america half of everything we raise goes straight to them um and it's 44 hours of everybody from the industry just talking about baseball uh, we're going to have things like a graphics competition across our graphics team we're going to have uh you you're going to do a great panel with uh with ron chandler and uh Derek carty and rudy gamble about projection systems um we have all this stuff, Rob Freeman, uh, Foolish Baseball, MLB Random Stats, and John Boy and Jake. I mean, it's going to be great for four straight days, 11 to 10, uh, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, starting on the 18th of February. So this is what I've been do- working on for the past month and change. Uh, so I just got to peer out the window looking at that snow like an old curmudgeon yeah. at the age of 32. Nice. Well, I was a part of that last year. I got to tell you, that was one heck of a conference. And uh um, I guess you'll uh, post uh, just everyone follow uh, Nick Pollock if you don't already, and you'll get details of that. And take a look and take a watch. You you won't be disappointed. You had a great uh, presentation last year. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, and I got good placement. It was uh, the one right after yours, right? I got a good lead. Uh, in. There, 
There we go. I needed to keep them. I, I like I, I peppered them up for you. There you and, go. And uh, you you had the. Uh, I mean, yeah, it was ATC projections. Like, who doesn't want to know what you know what's in the what's in the recipe there? That's amazing. Yeah. Well, we're not going to talk a lot about it today, but uh, do check out the article that I just dropped today on interprojection volatility. Now, ATC doesn't only come with projections; they come with how volatile a player is, talking about the parameter risk, the skewness of a player, the volatility of a player, everything you'll understand by reading the article. Uh, it's a biggie, so uh, check that out on Fangraphs today. But we're going to go right into our strategy section here, and uh, since we have the pitcherless guy himself, we're going to talk about pitching. And the first question I want to ask you that, that really goes to the heart of um, you know time and preparation and what, what is important to do and what is not important to do, you know, um, you know a lot about the heavy analytics that goes on with pitchers. Uh, we have guys who are just throwing fantastic articles about spin rate and and oh, yeah. contact off the bat. And there's a lot of very, very advanced concepts. And my question is, you know, for the average person out there who's listening to the show, how worth it is it for them to really get into the deep diving as opposed to just looking at simple metrics? Like, does is it is it worth somebody's time, or is it something that they should be doing themselves or just reading others? Like, what, what do you think about heavy analytics and how it applies to the average person? That's a great question. I, I'm going to say no. Don't worry about it. You're getting intimidated by this stuff. Look, even me, I'm, I see some of these things, and at first I go, oh, my God, am I – undervaluing this guy because i don't recognize you know his spin efficiency on his, on his curveball like should i be thinking about it again but I, I think many of us in the industry will also tell you we have such a um cornucopia of information now that it's really hard for us to understand which you know what we should pull from it what we should actually should be eating from it right and i, I would say if you just get familiar with the basic saber metrics, say like K minus walk rate. That is one of the best indications of success, bar none. Uh, all those extra little bits, they help us get an understanding of how they do what they do. Um, but often those are expressed in other metrics and you don't really need to focus on it. I mean, good example that I have is uh, Chris Paddock last year was not as good. I mean, I don't think, you know, you don't need me much to tell you that, yeah, he wasn't very good, right? And it was very disappointing for your fantasy teams. But when you looked into it, we saw, oh, his fastball was not performing well. Okay. Why wasn't it performing well? Uh, it, there's the idea that it was off its spin axis, and that means that he wasn't essentially getting the same amount of rise that he normally was. And that means he does not gain the same swing strikes, and they're hitting it cleaner. That's fine. But if you just see the fact that his fastball is allowing more hits and not as missing as many bats, it doesn't matter all the exact uh, reasons why that those numbers are there, but just that they're there, right? Uh, so you don't need to get bogged down in all the incredibly finute details of every single pitch. But I will say that you know there are like three levels of, of understanding these metrics, right? There's the the shallow ones, which is just like your BABIP and your uh, your home run per nine and your whip. Then you have the actual pitch level stuff where if you look at the individual pitches on their own, they will tell you a much better story. Oh, he only has two pitches and really only one of them does he miss bats on and he's kind of inconsistent with that. Oh, he has four pitches and when one isn't working, he can throw another one that's also going to earn me strikeouts or, or get outs in the field. That's really, really good. 
And if you understand that level, you don't need to know all of those intricacies of the actual uh, chemistry uh, of, of making a pitch work. So it, it can be intimidating. Trust me, I've been there myself. But if you just get to that second level, I think you'll be vastly rewarded. You don't need to trek farther than that. So do you think that there's a difference between looking at pitchers in season versus preseason? So for example, you oh, know, you yes. mentioned you mentioned K minus K minus BB, uh, strike gets minus walk. Yes. And for me, that's the first thing I look at, which really stabilizes very quickly in a season. Um, but you know, I feel that a lot of some a lot of these metrics it's hard to know what to do before the season. Like, what did a guy do last year? But once you see how a guy is performing this year and how close he is to his normal profile or if he's better or not, that's a big indication. So, for example, if I see, like, a change in velocity, a guy is all of a sudden, first three games, he's up three miles an hour on his pitches. Whoa. That's yeah. a huge indication. But that's not something I could tell before the season starts. Or I'll look at his uh, ground ball to fly ball to line drive profile, and i say, wait a minute, this guy is getting – more ground balls this year that sort of interests me. I find that there's a there's a number of quick, not that deep statistics that you can get very much in season. But I found I find that a lot of the more advanced ones are more helpful in a preseason uh, uh, evaluation. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I you're talking to the right person about like in season decisions. That that is what oh man it, it's the most fun thing right because I do the SP roundup I write about every single starter every single day right that's the, that's just pretty much how I do this right right and I'm following what they're doing I'm following their pitch changes it was this curveball effective this start was it not I can I see consistency on a game by game basis sometimes on a at bat by at bat basis through the games. And that gives me so much more information. You know, we're, we, we're spending months and months and months preparing for essentially, I say, the first week of April, right? Because after that, or maybe really like the, the first two weeks of April, it's all like yep. thrown away. You know, we have all this new data. I mean, obviously, there are some situations of, okay, we think this guy's going to rebound. He's not this bad. Of, of course not. It's not too quick to quit your studs after, you know, a week or two. But we really get so much data. I mean, as you're saying, velocity increase. I mean, pitch usage. All of a sudden, he's throwing that changeup that he wasn't before, and he's getting the whiffs on it. Uh, there's a lot of those intricacies that, that really, really help in season. And I think you make a great point that, cool, in the, the offseason, we can kind of sift through those narratives a bit easier when we see those giant uh, you know, macro changes. Right. And when he's getting, oh, wait, I didn't realize they increased the spin on this curveball by 300 RPM or whatever it is. Right. I and mean, that is a better indication that something might be sticky that may present itself quicker in the season. Right. Uh, so so I, I'm with you there. I, I, I it's it's funny to me. Um, and I kind of bank on this a lot because, I mean, that's in my whole pitching strategy. But that's another tangent um, about like how you find talent in season. And if you draft accordingly, knowing that you're going to be able to find talent in season, then you can actually set yourself up for a more successful season. Actually, you, you, you actually hit on the follow-up question that I want to ask you. How many innings into the season do you say, okay, you know what? This guy figured it out. Oh, that's a really good question. I, I'd say there is no right answer because it's nuanced, right? There are certain guys that I inherently know are, are volatile, that I know that one start – good example – Spencer Turnbull last year, 
Uh, I, I've been saying for a while, Spencer Turnbull's sinker is not a good pitch. And it's frustrating because you can even see when he has success, it's when his fast four-seamer, he trusts it and does well. But when he doesn't, he goes sinker, he has just just worse performances, right? First start of the year, no sinker. It was pretty much like a 5% sinker after throwing a 20 30% before. I got really excited. Oh, and then he brought it back the next start, right? And then I learned my lesson. And there are certain players like that that doesn't matter how many innings I get. I don't know if I'm going to be able to trust them. Now, if they're a veteran, though, if they have more of a track record of doing something opposite, and then all of a sudden there's something getting tweaked here, then I, I buy into it more. Uh, it's, it is very much of a case-by-case. Case. I can't just say how many innings. Um, I can say also say, like, look, if you just did something and had success with it, more often than not, they will continue doing the thing that they just had success with. Um, the question then is, are they going to be in rhythm enough to trust that they can continue doing that? That is, no one's going to be able to get that right, but uh, that's kind of the fun. You never know. Right, right, right. Um, I'll go to Ruvain first for this one. Talking about, you know, qualitative off-season information. Like sometimes you get, hey, this pitcher has a new pitch. The pitcher bulked up in the off-season. He has a tweak in his delivery, you know, that kind of thing. So for you, Ruvain, what things do you hear that you actually pay attention to and what to you is just noise? Um, well, first of all, for a pitcher who's been struggling or a pitcher who's been doing well and wants to improve their game, it's two different completely things. Uh, well, Chris Archer, who just re-signed with Tampa, said he's going to eliminate his two-seam fastball. His two-seam fastball got crushed. And if he eliminates that, he may be back a little bit to more of the pitcher he was before the trade and everything like that. Then you have a patient, uh, patient, a pitcher like Lucas Giolito, who said he's going to use his curveball more. What will that mean? Is that going to mean he's going to get he's going to get hit more? Is that going to mean he's going to use his his fastball, which is great, even less? And then another thing is if a, a pitcher has two pitches and they said they're learning a third pitch or a third or they have three pitches and they're learning a fourth pitch, the question is. I would watch them during spring training because you're going to see them. They're going to try out a whole bunch of stuff. That's what spring training is for. And that's why a lot of these pitchers struggled or and didn't do that well early last year because the spring training was very abbreviated. They didn't get to their normal groove. They didn't get a chance to try out these little tweaks that they're doing. And, you know, these are things that you have to watch for and see if they're going to change during the course of spring training and then during the course of the season. Nick, you want to add something to that? Oh, man. I love that. Like, <laughs> Spring training is so important. I know we say, oh, stats and spring training, uh, we need to ignore that stuff. No, but there are so many fantastic stories and, and things you can track that will affect the start of the year. And uh, yeah, Chris Archer, man, everybody has forgotten about this. I did. I, I thought he would be missing more time. I didn't realize he'd be starting out of the gate, and I completely neglected him for ages. And now I'm kind of like... Chris Archer, why wouldn't I just take a shot and see what happens right out of the gate, right? You're uh, talking to the guy who never picks Chris, Chris Archer, you know. Uh, well, now I'm is the, the time to do I'm it. The anti Chris Archer, guy. nothing. He costs nothing. <laughs> That's nothing. true. That's true. That's true. A uh, free is and, free, uh, you, right? It doesn't matter who you can pick up uh, a Nick Pollock in your league for free. You, and, you could, you know. but then you'd lose. So we know that answer. <laughs> Wouldn't get many. Strikeouts, we, we don't know right. with Chris. <laughs> yeah, maybe I can get zero strikeouts. All right. I uh, no, but but spring training. Yeah, we've seen increased velocity from guys before, um, and that can pay dividends. Man, I, I, I can't say it enough. John Means this past year in 2020, we saw essentially by the time he actually was in rhythm and had enough starts to be stretched out, he had 21 strikeouts in his final two starts, and he was throwing harder. And we knew he was throwing harder this time last year before everything shut down. And it's stuff like that 
you, you can really take out of spring training and apply it early in the season. So, yeah, I can't agree more. Uh, yeah, I really can't agree more than that. Yeah, the two things that, that come to mind for me is, uh, you know, the, the pitcher saying, I have a new pitch. That's always interesting to me. And uh, velocity change. Uh, see what they do in spring training. Um, I, I look at strikeouts in spring training. Just even if it doesn't matter the result, but are they striking out batters? Um, very often you see a large increase in strikeouts in spring training, and it could. I mean, it, it, again, you're looking for players to think, should I give the jump? Should I bubble them up a little bit more? Just look at strikeouts in spring training. Why not, right? It's just it's just there. Um, question for you, Nick. Um, you know, I'm a projection guy, obviously, and um, Alex Chamberlain wrote a nice article for Fangraphs uh, a week ago talking about uh, guys like Kyle Hendricks, and projections don't really predict Kyle Hendricks well. They always overestimate his ERA, and Chamberlain was, you know, pointing out that, you know, he might have uh, induced weaker contact, or there's some things that pitchers have more control over uh, the elements that projections do not give credit for, right? Projections make things that seem random, whereas, uh, in fact, they do control, and that's why they can be better, or worse, it goes the other way uh, than than any other pitcher. Um, So the question is, you know, what do you think about that, and are there certain elements that you think a pitcher does have control over that aren't in projections, and maybe a couple of names if you even have as to somebody you think that should be a little bit undervalued based on what ATC would say, let's say. Um, okay. So the main problem with projections and I, uh, I'll be honest, Ariel, you do such an amazing job with them. I hate projections. I uh, am because I don't feel, I mean, maybe actually with what you introduced today, they'll tell a better story of the volatility and the ups and downs and kind of the range of cases. Right. Uh, it doesn't, tell the story of what it's like to be a fantasy manager for the entire year um, rostering that player. Cause we make this assumption that we get a guy and all of a sudden that's my stats for the year for this player. And we kind of forget like, well, wait, if he's not doing well in April, am I going to keep the faith of this projection for the next five months to, to get that number? Probably not in many cases. Anyway, that's another ramble. They don't, they, there is no good stat for command. There just just isn't. There's a control stat uh, of walk percentage, and we like to think that weak contact is command. But there really isn't. There isn't this amazing uh, statistic that outlines how good a pitcher is putting the ball where he wants with what kind of movement. And Kyle Hendricks is very good at that. And it doesn't surprise me at all that we see projection systems not like him because of that. Um, Someone else that is undervalued, though, I uh, that's a great question. I'm not I'll be honest, I don't I, I don't throw uh well I don't go after projection systems a lot. Like for example, I'm putting out my top 200 starters on Tuesday and I've tried my best to avoid as many rankings as possible so I'm not uh diluted or biased uh looking at others. So I I don't have a great answer off the top of my head. I would think that um, a guy like Kershaw or um, maybe Patrick Corbin aren't getting recognized enough. For example, I'm throwing away Patrick Corbin's 2020 season for the most part, while Kershaw, I imagine there's an expectation of degradation that I don't necessarily think is going to happen. I think when I saw it, they're predicting Kershaw to have the worst season of his career by far, and I don't know if that's going to happen. 3-2 ERA, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, okay, interesting. And, and interesting, you say you you don't uh, you hate projections. Of course, that's yes, such a I'm strong sorry. word. I'm but, sorry. Well, 
No, no. <laughs> uh, listen, we're here to, to debate, and we're here to get different ideas from different people. And, you know, uh, just because I like projections doesn't mean everybody has to. And uh, there are – I mean, the question I just asked you showed that there are a lot of elements that aren't going to be in project. You have to know what is in a projection and what you can get out of it, right? There's information that is just not in there that if you don't study, you won't get it. Um, but uh, w when when you make rankings, um, how does how do you come with that? Are you looking at historical numbers? Are you looking at some set of projections? Uh, like how how does that come together for you? Yeah, that's a really really good question. Okay, you know I am going to to pull back. I apologize. Should not have said hate. <laughs> I I have uh, distrust. A, a tough... Distrust. I, I I just. I, I, you're right. They have to be used the right way. And the way that they're used the correct way, I think, is a foundation. And a way to just kind of get yourself, you know, settled and you're able to then build off of and say, okay, I understand why it's saying that. Where do I disagree? I disagree with this. Okay, so then I'm going to say this, right? When I do my rankings, um, I actually, for I think for the first 60, for the top 60, I do, I, I'm putting in a Nick's reluctant 2021 projections i literally call them that uh just to give everyone a baseline understanding of of the player but when i'm doing these rankings um it's a mixture of many factors uh one is how much volume do i expect which is like the hardest thing to understand and project properly what is volume uh there is so many different elements that go into how many innings a guy gets in a given year uh, I'm also trying to weigh in what his realistic ceiling and floor are. And what dictates that to me are these elements that are somewhat lost in projections. I mean, they, again, they get expressed, but I, I'm very much someone that tries to take the repertoire and, and see what they can and can't do with it. And I uh, and just say, okay, I feel that this guy's going to take a step forward or step back or kind of where he is at the moment. And that's kind of how I do my rankings. I just I go like that. I know that sounds so nebulous and vague. Uh, no. But I, I, yeah. I do root myself in creating that projection. If I look at that and say, that looks stupid, Nick, then all right. Then I might change my rankings. That keeps right. me in check a bit. Right. Of course, by you making rankings, you're inherently making, uh, you're indirectly making a set of projections, right? It's, it's true. I guess it, so. Right. It's it's it, you know you you feel that there's a certain number of innings for a player and a certain uh, um up uh, upside and downside. And by the way, you know you you alluded to this that you know this volatility metrics I have actually cover some of the upside and downside in terms of parameter risk, and it, it actually defines the shape. It shows which pitchers um all the do all the projections agree on, which do projections go much further so you get the range of up and down but also I have the shape I have the skewness in there so for some pitchers it there's an average but it skews up or it skews down and so you know there's more projections up or down uh, uh how, how thick is the floor right uh so it, maybe uh maybe that it is a step in the right direction that will make you love projections well even more well uh, <laughs> okay <laughs> like them more is a very good way of saying <laughs> I'm trying to balance you out, Nick. You know, I love it. <laughs> okay, uh, let's go to Ruben first in this one. Uh, we're talking to about 2021, and um, you know, with the short, you have the short season, you have COVID going on, so 2021 just feels like a slightly different season. I, it's not like we're doing the same thing over and over, and let's just find these guys. We have to account for a couple of different things that we didn't before, and some of it has to do with COVID, but some of it has to do with the fact that analytics are now being a larger part of what teams look at, and the game is changing itself. 
So let's talk a little bit about a few of these aspects that come up. One is, um, Ruvain, are teams going to go more to a six-man rotation? That more has to do, I think, with COVID and the fact that we have a short season. Um, but are you going to see more six-man rotations, and how would that affect fantasy baseball? I definitely think they're going to be more six-man rotations. And a couple teams already mentioned they're going to do six-man rotations. First of all, with a six-man rotation, you're going to lower the total innings that each pitcher is going to have to pitch, which means their workload is going to be lower, which is what they teams a lot of teams want, especially the younger pitchers, because a lot of these pitchers didn't pitch that many innings last year, and they don't want them to break down, and that's very important. Now, how that affects fantasy very important. There are less starts for each starter. The middle relievers get more time. There are less wins available for the starters. Less strikeouts should be into projections if, if they know they're going to have a six-man rotation. Like we mentioned in the podcast before, Shohei Otani. What is he going to be worth if he's pitching in six-man rotation? Uh, people value him as a pitcher. People value him as a hitter, but you don't know. There are going to be less two-star pitchers down the road also. So when you have to pick up pitchers on the waiver wire, you have to decide, you know what? a lot of these teams are not going to have two-star pitchers, and they're going to be few and far between. So you have to have a certain strategy to pick up these two-star pitchers. But the six-man rotation, I think, is going to happen for a lot of teams. First of all, a lot of teams that are very deep. Like you have a team that, like the, like the Dodgers. They can definitely go with a six-man rotation. I know Trevor Bauer is not going to like that, but they'll definitely, they can definitely go with it, and they'll have no issue with it whatsoever. But then you have a team like the Pirates, who right now, according to roster resources, Stephen Brault is their number one. I mean, if, if that's their number oh one, boy. how are they going to have Keller. a six-man rotation? What what are they doing? I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Now, if there's another team like the Orioles, they want to see what they have. They want to bring up the pitchers. Or the, the Tigers, they want to see what prospects they have. They're going to throw out those pitchers on a six man, as a six-man rotation. And you know what? Those pitchers can, if they're not going to pitch the full five innings, six innings, six innings, they can still come in and throw them maybe on their day off and come in. You may see some weird things this year just because of the innings issues from last year. Yeah, I think there's going to be a distinction between teams that are going for it and not going for it. And I think you, you'll you see a more traditional five-man rotation other than maybe the Dodgers for teams that are going for it. Uh, but, uh, I mean, who are we kidding me? With all the, the injuries, I mean, you, Ruben, I, I can't, uh, I don't have to remind you about injuries. Um, I think that if teams even try to do it, you're going to see injuries pop up and they're going to force back to a five-man rotation. It's going to happen, right? I, I can't 100% expect, because, yeah. because injuries have been up anyway for the past couple of years and if you add into the fact but the one difference between this season and last season is that there's again I'm going back to the spring training they have this they're expecting to have a full spring training and a normal spring training which means a lot more than people think yeah um there could also be an issue if the season is delayed uh in terms of ramp up ramp down who knows we don't know who, what's going on uh, but I will say though what you said is correct though if there is six man rotations especially late in the year that makes streaming harder because one of the advantages especially if you're in a shallower league uh is to take or in, in a weekly lineup setting is to get these two star pitchers that give you extra innings and extra strikeouts and extra po- potential for wins so it, watch out there might be less of those in baseball and that would make your current roster a little bit more uh, important you know nick you were saying early in the show that you know what do you do in season they're streaming well that's a factor because you're going to stream less if there is six-man rotations anything to add to that ah okay so streaming though streaming sucks and the what you're what the goal of streaming is is to stop streaming uh, so if you if you attack streaming with the idea that I am picking up guys that could potentially stick on my team, then you're going to find yourself in June, July not streaming anymore. 
Uh, in 2019, if you look back, and I, I did this for uh, for First Pitch Florida last year. I was uh, there. Oh, man. You, you, do you remember the slide where I had a column that showcased all of the pitchers you could have gotten past picked 300, not even including the ones that were after 200 and dropped likely? Yep, yep, yep. And then there was a second column that had another list of names, and then it shoved on the whole screen Brandon Woodruff and Mike Soroka and Mike Miner that all were super helpful through the entire year. Uh, that that is something you have to give yourself the opportunity to still do. Um, so I, I'm completely with you that streaming is still going to be tough. At the beginning of 2020, it was really hard because players weren't going five; they were going like three innings the first couple weeks, and then we missed out on streaming for like two to three weeks. Well, that's that's like what a third of the season. I mean, that that was really really hurtful and and, and it harmed your team a lot more. We'll still see some impact like that. Exactly what you guys are talking about, where we might be seeing fewer innings in starts, and if it's not two start pitchers, I'm not too worried about the the the, the two start streaming market. Uh, but I am a little bit worried, especially a little bit in April of um, guys that might get pulled a little bit sooner than we would like. Um, Ravine, you made a really good point about six man rotations. Uh, we always joke about this. Like some team says, "Oh yeah, we're going to do a six man rotation," and then like two weeks in, doesn't exist anymore. Um, it could happen more so this year. And I, I, I go back and forth on this, like a team like the Tigers are saying they could ship away Matthew Boyd again. Right. I, uh, and you might think, oh, okay, they'll go five man then. But then there, there is an argument to be had that some of these teams will not shift it because they do want to get that volume on their younger starters now so that when they are in their, their competitive window, they're not going to have to limit them at that point. You know, at some point, they're going to have to push these guys. And it could be now for some of these teams, it could not. I think it's going to be a very case-by-case basis. Like, the Dodgers, I, I think I'm with you. They should be going six-man. They could do something crazy where Bauer is not part of the six-man. Like, he goes every fifth day regardless while everyone else, like, sidles around him, you know? Things like that can work because you do want to limit Kershaw's innings. You still, I guess, for some reason, Dodgers like, yeah, Bueller, not not ready yet. You know, David Price, how many are we going to get from him after missing all 2020? So that might work. I don't know. There, there are a lot of crazy ideas out there about it. We might see that from the Dodgers. Um, but yeah, I if, I if I were a betting man, I do actually think that we'll see a significant amount of six-man rotations. Not like half of the league, but we'll see. I, I would be... I would say like five of them actually sticking through the year. Yeah, so that's the Dodgers, and and because they have they have the talent to to actually do the oh, six man, man. Rot- they have the talent to do a seven man rotation. Yeah. To be honest, <laughs> um, but have a team like the Rays now. You know, Blake mm. Snell didn't. We all know only had five inning starts. Five inning starts. Even in the World Series when he was rolling, oh, five man. inning starts. Uh, I don't think they're going to do a a six man rotation. The Rays would do a bullpen games if any. But what what do we do with starting pitchers on, on the Rays? Are are they just because of the fact that you, you know to get a pitching win, it's about pitching length, right? Your team has to be up, and you have to have length. You can pitch phenomenal and and have a shutout in the fifth inning. But, you know, if you're not in there for the seventh when they score, you ain't getting the win. So are you going to be fading pitchers on the Rays? Are you picking them with a little bit more caution because their win total could be lower? Um, I don't know if that's necessarily the reason why, for example, when Charlie Morton was there, I had no hesitation. Um, You know, he was in 2019. They were like, yeah, go ahead, Charlie. Do your thing. And he had a fantastic season. 
But who are they who are they doing that this year with? The, well, the they're not. Ahead. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying that's right. not necessarily that's the, that's the raise. It's just that they don't have the guy that they would fit that role, right? Um, like last now, yeah, I am factoring the fact that they're not going to let him consistently go six innings. It's just not. No, they're not it's going just to. Not what he's going to do. I uh, Kyle, uh, sorry, um, uh, Ryan Yarbrough. I call him the fratty pirate because Yarbrough. I uh, <laughs> he. <laughs> He's probably not either. Even during his great 2019 stretch, Yarbrough was still pulled often in it, and it made me really upset about it. Uh, there's a uh, oh man, I know I'm forgetting a major name there, but uh, there's Josh Fleming in there too. I'm not too thrilled about I, I, like all of the the arms that they have. Uh, yeah, we mentioned Chris Archer. Um, I, I just it, those aren't the kind of pitchers that would would force their way into the sixth constantly. And because right. of that, yeah, I have to take into account that they are on the race. All right. Right back to you on this one, Nick. Um, you know, we hope that the season starts on time, but it is entirely possible uh, that the season is delayed by a month, let's say. Uh, we're not going to spend too much time on this question because I'm going to be optimistic here and say it won't. But uh, how would that affect how you would be drafting uh, players right now if you knew that uh, there's going to be a month delay? That's a great question. Um a couple things. Uh, one, um, the injured guys get a value boost. So, like Mike Soroka, not supposed to start on opening day right now, but hey, then if it gets delayed, then he returns. That's a good thing. You could say that, like Chris Sale, Severino, Syndergaard, those, uh, the moment that you would swing the for three those guys should be. Yeah, there you go. I uh, They would jump up a little bit earlier. Um, it, it, but it extends not just to the guys that are already injured. The ones that we generally have injury risks for are more enticing. Because when they do miss time, it's less time relative. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is if you say Jameson Tyone, oh, we only expect 150 innings from him. Well, if no one is pitching more than 170, then that's fantastic, right? Uh, that's those injury-prone guys. Uh, yeah, they become a little bit more interesting to me. I also would say in the top 20 or 30, my rankings. Um, I emphasize those that I expect to not only go like 175, but also 200 or so like Lance Lynn. Oh man. I love Lance Lynn for this year. There's no way Tony La Russa is even a, even asking Lynn to, to get out of the game before hundred pitches and be with, you know, Lance Lynn's not going to let him take the ball from him. So you're going to see so many innings from him and that's incredibly valuable. But if or if we have fewer games than those that we expect to get the cutoff, like Brandon Woodruff, we're at 175 because the Brewers are apparently only going to do a slap, like across the board, here you go, 100 innings, like they're throwing a magnet on the fridge, then Brandon Woodruff isn't going past 180. However, you bring it all down, Woodruff, Lynn, much more appetizing to take Woodruff instead of Lynn, right? That That's kind of the major difference if it does shift. I really hope it doesn't, Ariel. Um, I'm not going to throw that juju out there. Yep. Okay. Not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. No, of course, that, that's, that is the right point. And, of course, as we talk on the show, that auction prices are not a real thing. And they're all relative to each other. And, of course, if uh, you would have pitched a small number of innings relative to somebody else, if you're now going to – you're going to be at the same threshold, but everyone else is down because there's fewer innings, there's a month less – then you're relatively going up. Ruvain, do we miss anybody? Maybe somebody who's injured could be hitters or or, or, or anybody. It's not not just a pitcher question here, really. 
Well, it, well, for, for I'm going to continue with the pitchers. Not just the pitchers who are coming off injury like the ones you mentioned already, but also David Price, Marcus Stroman, the pitchers who didn't pitch at all last year. They may take a little bit longer to get going, and the managers may have a very quicker hook earlier on. But if they're able to build up their stamina earlier on in, in let's say, inter-squad games, something like that, then you may be able to get more innings out of them. Another guy, um, Miles Mikolas, he's coming off of an injury. More time for him to rehab. Everyone, rem- everyone has to remember last year in March, everyone's on the Phillies said that Andrew McCutcheon wasn't going to start on time. He was going to be a month late. The season was delayed. He didn't miss any time. So people who 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 got who drafted him early, they had no problem getting him, and they got him, and they got all they needed out of him. So a lot of these players who are going to be available in May, in June, back to their quote unquote full load, then you're going to get the most out of them. Yeah, you know what the interesting thing is, and uh, this is the actuary in me talking, but you know when you generally draft injured players or injury risk players, when you're you're making the assumption on a team that injury risk is not correlated, right? What is somebody who's pitching on the Brewers have to do with an injury on the Dodgers who's hitting? Like you wouldn't think that injury is correlated, but if you think about it, it is correlated here. Because it, the time, right? If, if, if we're missing a month and it's delayed, injury players get more injured time back. So when you're drafting a very risky team because of injury, it's actually an increased risk. You're not diversifying because you have different players. Risk could be all together, right? The same, mar- the same macro influence on, on injury, which is time for recovery, appears both for anybody in the whole sport, doesn't matter what your injury is from. So it's just a very interesting actuarial thing I've noticed about this. Uh, but back to uh, back to the, uh, the the pitching here. So you mentioned that what the Brewers are doing, and they're going to add, or at least they say they whatever you had last last year, add a hundred. Um, is this a Brewers thing only? Are other teams going to do that? Uh, and, and just in general, Nick, how can people who who have only had 50, 60 innings last year. How can they actually physically ramp up to 180, 190? You talked about, you know, you want your youngsters, you know, getting more volume because when the, when the team is ready, you want them to be able to go a lot. H- how are people really gonna gonna ramp up that much? Other than you know the old Lance Lynn veterans and, and Bauer who wants to pitch 400 innings this year. You know, how, how's that gonna work? Yeah, so you might remember uh, I mentioned before that the hardest thing to do this year is to project volume because we just don't know. I, I would say for me personally, I'm making an assumption that any pitcher who has already showcased volume in their past, for example, Lucas Giolito throwing 175 innings or so uh, for two years already, is going to be able to do that again. I uh, I Look, we just don't know how much they actually pitched. Yes, we we have this number of major league innings. How much did they pitch in the alternate sites? How much did they pitch in the winter leagues now? Because teams like, hey, we still need to get more volume from you. Hey, how many of them were still going hard in May and June uh, in preparation for the 2020 season? We really just don't know. And if I'm going to do anything harsh, it's more so for the young guys that really have not done much of anything in the majors thus far. Those are really the only ones I'm treating harshly. Um, But someone even like Zach Gallen, who is young, but he threw 170 innings in minor league ball and the majors in 2019. I don't really see a problem having him go more than 160 uh, for 2021. And that could be completely wrong. 
but this is all we have to base on this, and right. uh, I'm hoping I'm not wrong. Right. All right. So there's different correlation you think between uh, past uh, innings ramp up and what's going to be, and obviously we'll find that out soon enough. Well, so basically, let me add something and add another idea here. When pitchers come back from injury, like I'm going to give an example, a pitcher we're going to talk about later, Andrew Heaney. In 2017, he only threw 21 innings, but in 2018, he threw 180 innings. So it is doable to jump from that low number to high, but I think it's going to vary from organization to organization. Yeah, and, and the question, and the question I want to ask, I'll throw in an additional thing there. You know, take a guy like David Price who didn't pitch at all last year. Uh, maybe Price is is not the best example because he's an older guy, but you know, in general. Uh, one of the opt-outs like can a guy who opted out just come back straight from there i mean you have kopech who opted out but it's not like kopech wasn't pitching until he opted out and when he opted out it's not like he's just playing video games all day you know these guys recognize that oh right i need to be in the best shape of my life for or ready to go for 2021 um so i'm not yeah i'm not treating it too harshly Okay. Uh, I have to think these guys recognize it, you know, that they need to be prepared. And there's going to be a lot expected from them. They're going to do what they need to do to be prepared for it. Right. All right. Just last, uh, General, uh, any other comments about what might be different uh, for 2021? 20, Not in terms of the pitching landscape, but in terms of our thought process compared to a regular year. Yep. I'm going to be a lot more wrong than before. That, that's all I got there. Just so be prepared for that. Uh, and I can't wait to experiencing it with all of you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as projections will go, of course, you know, the oh, the, ac- the accuracy of projections this year will be worse just, than in most just, years. What are, what are we supposed to do, Ariel? It's, it's I mean, it's it, so that's crazy. what it is. I, but, you know, you have the same problem as everybody else. So, right. It, so let's just have fun and embrace best. it. And, and, then, uh, and then after and the draft, when people are starting to get pick, pick pick people up on Fab, people used all their money very early last year. Everyone has to get back to you know spreading their money out. Otherwise, they're going to have nothing left. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, listen, it's an opportunity. Anytime there's something different, uh, it's an opportunity for the people who are smart and who have a good sense of what to do to gain. Right. The less you have steady, 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 steady. Uh, now you you think, and those who can think well will do more, and that's why we have this show to give everyone here nuggets of information that you really can't get anywhere else in terms of your thought process, more than just the players, your thought process. Um, we're going to talk now about the starting pitcher playing pool. Uh, we talked with uh, Paul Spore the other week about some of the top of the pitching uh, draft, so we're going to focus a little bit more on the bottom. But just before we get to that, do you have, Nick, do you have a general starting pitcher strategy uh, in terms of drafting? Um, Just for example, I know there's people who do the pocket aces strategy where I need two pitchers in the first three rounds. I can't live without it. Then some pitchers, you know, don't need to do that. Or some people are going full stars and scrubs, just pick pitchers in the middle. Like, Do you have a, a specific strategy that you're doing this year or not, or you're just going for the value? Sure. I love Toby. That is bat flip crazy with the pocket aces. Um, I recognize that I, well, I like to think that my strength is recognizing pitching. Uh, so I draft that way. That is, I don't go after pitching early because I'd rather spend uh, the you know on on hitters so that I can adapt with pitching, work on my strength, right? Um, but for this season, I've done a lot of mock drafts and talked to my staff about the ones that we did. We ran four of them through the offseason. And keep in mind, this is for 12-teamers. That's generally how I, uh, how I approach talking about fantasy baseball. Um, my main strategy is four starting pitchers within the first 10 rounds that I trust. 
that I feel like I'm not going to drop any of them through the entire year. Those that are going to get me over 150 innings each, um, hopefully around 170 each. And having that foundation essentially says, okay, with the other half of my rotation, because generally you have about eight starters or so. I sometimes go get carried away and have like 10, but you have about eight or so. You got to find the other four either in the back half of that draft or during the regular season and have the recognition that, yeah, normally when I draft a 12-teamer, that is 23 rounds or so, look back at your previous drafts and, and figure out how many of them you actually kept for the season. I think you'll find that you kept maybe half of them through the full season. Recognize that these are guys that you could likely be dropping early on. So then you should be doing two things. One, getting starting pitchers that have favorable schedules early because you'll recognize like, oh, I'm, I'm on the fence about this guy. Oh, wait, he has two tough starts that I don't want to start him against early. Why would you be drafting that guy when you can get production of someone like Zach Davies or Ak Mills who both get the Pittsburgh Pirates twice to start the season? That sounds like something I would much rather do. And then I can throw back Alec Mills. There'll be someone else that I want to get after that. So if you have that approach of saying I have four uh, that are anchoring my staff, it doesn't need to be DeGrom and Cole and Bieber. It can be like Kenta Maeda and Lance Landon, Carlos Carrasco and Zach Greinke. Great. Maybe some Sandy Alcantara in there. Uh, just across the first four, uh, ten rounds, you got to get four of those guys. Set yourself up for that opportunity. Uh, as far as auctions go, I I feel kind of similarly. Um Maybe I would spend a little bit more on another starter that I like. I might act because I recognize that the, the strategy I have for snake drafts doesn't really reflect normally because the dollar value can be kind of equal farther into the uh, the pitching pool than I would like. Uh, so I might favor one guy in the top 10 that I would pay a little bit more for and then go over three more before the inside the top 40 or so. Um, but that uh, the, the same premise is there uh, on both ends. Four guys that you really trust and then open yourself for the opportunity to add during the season. All right, interesting. We haven't really heard that kind of thing on our show so far this year. Uh, Ruvain, I'll ask you this. You know, uh, we've noticed uh, from talking with each other that there are some players that maybe we'll prefer more in a snake draft setting, or at least we, we will find ourselves rostering more, and maybe there's some players that we'll find rostering more in an auction. Uh, who are some of those players for you? Well, some of those players, those are like the 1A players. You mentioned a couple of them already. You mentioned Carlos Carrasco. Um, if you want strikeouts, you can you can go with um, either a, a Lucas Giolito, who's not as high up. You can go with, you know, a lot of these mid-range mid guys. In, in Well, in a draft, it depends where you are. It depends how the draft is going. It depends on the runs. But in auction, you can actually pick and choose. You, you can pick who you want. That's the beauty of an auction. You can spend however much you want on each pitcher, but you have to use the money smartly. Otherwise, you're going to lose them. You're going to lose value. The main thing is value, value, in my opinion, value, value, value. It doesn't matter who you're going to get. If they fit your value and they fit your team, then they're worthwhile. Yeah, I'm going to find myself drafting not much of Max Scherzer in a draft, in a snake draft, but I might actually go for him in an auction. I think that people are, uh, with Scherzer, it's funny. Uh, you know, you look at all the projections and they look like he's still awesome. Uh, you know, top eight, top nine pitcher, but people don't want to pick him. He, this, he's going to fall off. He won't pitch. And they're sort of fading him uh, just by the whim of their seat. 
but somebody will pick him up at a certain point in a draft. Um, for an auction, I feel like they're going to fade him even more. You know, why spend $30 on Max Scherzer, get somebody else, and you'll find that there's so many other pitchers that will be pushed up more that Max Scherzer will be maybe the 10th or 11th best pitcher in uh, – not, not best, but most uh, the more, most money spent on in an auction, and that might be a buying opportunity that maybe I'll, I'll go for. Um, are there any, any pitchers that for, for you, Nick, that you might be less or more, whether you're in a draft or auction? That's a really good point with Scherzer, by the way. I don't think he gets enough respect. He, he deserves more respect. Um, I could see on the other side of it, like, I find myself in snake drafts getting Kenta Maeda and Zach Allen a bit later, fourth, fifth rounds, as opposed to the, the third round swing where all those guys go in the top ten. I And kind of Lance Lynn and Carrasco and stuff, I can see myself getting them as they fall, but then auctions, they get kind of grouped together with the other ones. Blake Snell is a good example. Blake Snell is costing more than his snake draft relative price, right? Uh, like a two-round difference in a snake draft is way different than you know a couple dollars uh, relative in the auction. Right. Uh, so so that's that's kind of where I would see the biggest gap. Um, and also, I think in, in snake drafts, I find myself in the fast, last couple rounds just getting my fun guys more often. And I feel like right, Drew Smiley, right. for example, I would not be able to get him for a dollar. You know, I'll have to spend like five, six dollars to get Drew Smiley. But then in a snake draft, I can just get him the 20th round. And I feel like that's a lot easier uh, to get. So those are great points. Um, and I'll just to touch on a little bit of what you said there to expand. Um, you know, in in a draft, you're right. If you the supposed value or the uh, the deemed draft capital that you'd have to pay at each point in the draft goes down a little bit more significantly than the drop that the players are worth in terms of auction dollars. So when you get, if you take a look at let's say ATC auction dollars that are generated, there's going to be a large pack of pitchers somewhere that vary between two and three dollars, right? And you can find more of a market uh, efficiency there where just because there's so many pitchers valued the same, somebody is going to drop more. So I would expect for those clumps where there's a lot of people in there, you're going to get pitchers more in that range, whereas in a draft, you probably won't get them because they're either going to be overvalued from your standpoint or they're just not going to be available because people have to take the certain quantity. So um, it's, a, it's a good point, and, and uh, I think you should be aware of that, that the clumps of value are a big big distinguisher between auctions and drafts in terms of who you're going to get and what your plan is. You cannot create the same plan for a draft than an auction. People make this mistake all the time that when you're planning, you know, you can't just say, I like this pitcher, I like this pitcher. Some pitchers are a bigger value in auction and some are a bigger value in drafts and you have to plan each one individually against the market for that for that uh, format, right? It's it's totally different. You can't just make one plan. Plan everything. Every league has to be individually, but draft and auction has more differences than you think. Yeah. All right. Now, for the part of the show, we talk about the ATC player discussion. That's where we take a couple of players who, on the surface, ATC seems like is a bargain as compared to the market, and we talk about whether we think that right. Well, you don't you don't love love projections, but let's see what ATC <laughs> let's ATC ATC says something, and I might disagree also, right? Uh, we don't take it as gospel, but ATC helps us bubble up some potential guys. Uh, so we're interested in, in uh, what you're gonna say about it, and we'll go around the room. Our first pitcher to talk about is Sean Manaya. 
Sean Manaya, who, um, you know, his best part of his game is his walk rate. Uh, his walk rate is super low at about 4%. Strikeout rate, not as good. He's got about a 20% strikeout rate, which is meh. But what I think you're getting out of Sean Manaya are some good ratios, or at least a nice, uh, a, a, a very high floor of what you're going to get. You're not going to get disasters. He has a 50% ground ball rate approximately. That's going to tell you that he's not going to be prone to these blow-up, blow-up games. Uh, looking at ATC's interprojection metrics, Sean Minaya has a 2.5 standard deviation. That's really low. So projections are really tight on him, and projections are saying he's about a $9 player in a 15-team auction where he's going for about 5 Um j- uh, Now, I usually don't mention this on the show, but uh, when I give auction dollar amounts, I, I, I can give amounts for any different kind of format, but just to standardize, I'm going to be talking more NFBC style, 15-team. Um, team 5 by 5 uh, if you play in the 10 team it's going to vary different but just so that I have a standard thing I throw out numbers like that anyways uh, Nick uh, what are your thoughts about Sean Manaya? are you interested and uh, w- where am I wrong eh, I don't really care for Sean Manaya this year uh, I mean <laughs> and, and a 12 teamer right uh, I, I uh, I understand 15-teamer. I think there's a little bit more value. Um, I think he's very borderline of what I call a Toby, um, which if you don't know a Toby, he's someone who you work with who gets the job done, but you don't really like him. Um, and that's obviously Toby from The Office. Um, and Shamanaya is going to be teetering with your waiver wire, I think, a lot in, in a 12-teamer because, I mean, he doesn't strike out guys. You know, 20% rate last year, near 17% 2018. He had that really weird blip. When he came back for September in 2019, but that was not stable. We all knew that. It's about 20 innings or so. And Manaya, like when you when you look at him as a pitcher, like how does he do things? He's a sidewinder who has always had injury problems. Um, he doesn't throw particularly hard, and he isn't a command focused guy. He just kind of I, I call him a shover. Like he he like shoves the ball into the zone. It's not this. Uh, you know, normally guys are just there. They're they're whipping it in there. He just kind of gets it there. And it doesn't have this feel of, of command intact that would suggest that he should have this really suppressed uh, hard contact rates or that he should be missing a ton of bats. He doesn't really have those major secondary pitches. The slider uh, slash curveball breakers aren't really special. Changeup has its moments. Um, so, so with Sean Manaya, it's just kind of borderline as a 12 teamer. And the problem is let's say he's the fourth starter. I don't know if that's what it's going to be. It doesn't really matter. The first three series that the athletics have are a four game set against Houston, three against the Dodgers, and then three against Houston again. So Manaya could easily get the Houston Astros twice to start the year. If I'm in a 12 teamer, I'm not starting Manaya for either of those two games. And so if I'm drafting him in a 12 teamer, I'm going to sit on my hands with Sean Manaya for two weeks for a guy whose ceiling is nothing great. And I can likely find someone to replace him on the waiver wire. If I wanted to chase a three, seven ERA at a one twenty whip I, I with a sub 20% strikeout rate. Like I don't see the appeal of, of me drafting Sean Manaya. So yeah, I'm not, not too interested. That's a good point. And I think for him, the league size matters. Right, oh, I think yes. I, I, I think very much. Certainly, in a 12, 10, 10, 12 team league, we're talking somebody who might ride the waiver wire, and especially you made a good point about 
uh, the matchups are pretty bad early on. Um, but for me, you know, uh, look look at his track record. Look at his uh, roto values uh, over the past couple years: five dollars, two dollars, nine dollars, five dollars. Last year, zero. Uh, you know, we're 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 talking about somebody who has earned value, and that's because his ratios are solid: three eight six, three six, one two one ERA. Last year, he had a four five, but he was a little bit unlucky. His FIP was three seven. So, I I kind of like fifteen team league. A guy that you're getting who's going in the seventeenth round. To ha- to pad some of your ERA, to me that's a unique profile in the 17th round. I'm interested because I think he's gonna probably drop. Uh, he's probably worth a few rounds more just looking at his expected production. I mean, you don't know if he's gonna pad your ERA, and and not to mention he has an injury history that isn't favorable. Um, I mean, yeah, he's is cheap the enough, year. To, but he's still cheap enough to drop. He's in the 17th round, so. Um, I, I think he's worth more in a 15-team league, and if you drop him, you drop him, you know? Right, right. Um, yeah, in a 15-team league, I understand the point of saying, hey, that ERA, that potential ERA plays up better. Uh, I think from 2018, when Manaya had a 3.59 ERA, his expected ERA was 4.69. Uh, we didn't quite believe it. We only ca- it only came with a 16.5% strikeout rate as well. Yeah, it, it's it pretty bad. All- there, right? kind of just uh, and a small sample of last year didn't really showcase anything different yeah um and 2019 we all knew it was an anomaly so it, it's just it, it's just a lot of shrugs and i will say this if i'm drafting a guy even if it's the 17th round you know i i have a philosophy of not drafting guys for the most part i mean this is this is not you know there, there are no catch-alls here but in general, I like drafting guys thinking that they can be more than what I'm drafting them at, right? And so you're saying 17th round, 15th team, Rashawn Benaya. I don't know if like he can be much more than that. So I I, I think there are other options out there that will make you have uh, will make up your mind earlier in the season, and that will allow you to find something else that could be better if it doesn't work out. But if it does work out, then it's a better value at the 17th round okay. than what Manaya would provide. All right, got it. Um, He is the opposite of a Chris, Chris Archer-type guy, which is the kind of guy that I stay away from. So interesting thought there. Uh, How about you, Ruvain? Anything to add to the conversation? Yes, actually. He's going to be a little bit farther away from that shoulder surgery. So it's going to be very interesting to see if his velocity – goes up a little bit in the spring and that may be yeah, something to down. watch for it's been down and now he's has a normal quote-unquote normal offseason um his babbitt last year was 30 points higher than his career which means he's a little bit unlucky and now maybe his defense gets a little bit better i mean they, they now have andrews at short instead of marcus simeon it's a slight increase because he is a ground ball pitcher, so he may get a little bit more lucky. He may have better defense, especially because he's a, he's a ground ball pitcher. So, I mean, with that better defense, you may have some upside. And plus, one thing in his favor, his hard hit, his hard hit rate was down from last down last year, which is something good. And if he can get his velocity up, you know, that may be someone you may be willing to pick in the 17th or 18th round. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, he's not a guy that screams, oh, my God. But, you know, for the price, I, I think it's in- very interesting. And, of course, a- as I say with everybody, it depends on the composition of your team. If you have a nice lead in strikeouts as to, uh, per-, per pitcher slot, he's a guy that would fit in. If you are if you have the ratios and you're a bit down on the strikeouts, he would not fit your roster. So it's also context-heavy there. All right. It's you now- know, actually, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Sure. I- I'm very curious. I wish I had it in front of me. Where is Mike Miner going relative to Sean Manaya? I will pull that up quickly on my ah, oh, you're the dashboard best, Ariel. There. 
<laughs> I, I, I don't. Uh, Mike Myers going the twenty first round, so he's going okay. a couple rounds later. So, so that's that's a very interesting comparison because a I think Miner's gonna get more innings than I than Manaya is. I yes. think Manaya, yes. uh, Miner has a favorable matchup at least to start the year where we can see where he's at. He made improvements to his breaking stuff last year. Um, I mean, essentially, I, I see them kind of in the same mold of this. I don't really expect them to have 25% strikeout rates. I don't, uh, but I, I also think they can help in ERA and WHIP to some degree. And in my head, I'm like, well, I, I think Miners showcased that he can have a 200 strikeout season as recent as two years ago, uh, in 2019 when he told the guy to drop the ball in foul territory. I there's there's something to be said about that. Um, I, that was just the first name that came to mind, but I have to think there are other guys around that area um that provides something similar if not more yeah there are and we're going to talk about some of them today as well a uh, good point about mike minor just uh he's got a negative uh 0.5 inter projectional skew which means mike minor uh has more upside to his projection than just the average although his average is not fantastic i'm projecting him for a 4.6 era uh, I don't love that, so that's no. why I'd pro- I'm going to probably stay away from Minor because of that. But he does have more upside than Minaya does. That that I'll give you over there. All right, it's time for the Injury Guru's weekly trivia. Well, the next player we're going to be discussing is going to be Andrew Heaney. I mentioned him earlier in the show. He does have a history of injuries. So my trivia question for this week is this. Who has pitched more innings since 2014? Is it Andrew Heaney or Rich Hill? Nick, what do you think? Oh, that's going to be since 2018? Since 2014. Oh, that's going to be Rich Hill. Okay, Ariel, what do you think? Um, I would have said Heaney, except that you're asking the question with Hill. The question is, why are you asking the question? Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say Hill because I think it's gonna be a trick question here. Okay, the answer is Rich Hill. Rich Hill has pitched right. 507 innings, and Andrew Heaney has pitched 502. No, so just same. just think about that. Just Andrew Heaney has gone through all these injury things. So is Rich Hill. Rich Hill get, has gotten you a lot more value. Now, as a bonus question, which teams did they pitch for during that time period? That's a oh, this man. is a little bit tougher. Heaney is just the just the Angels, right? Not just the no. Angels, no. no. No, 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 no. He was on the Marlins. Marlins. That's correct. That's where he came That's from. Correct. Yeah. He came oh, up yeah. with the Marlins. I, I remember now, watching his debut. I think it was even against the Angels. Maybe not. Now, Rich um, Hill. Rich Hill. What are the what teams has he pitched for since 2014? Oakland. Cubs. Red Sox. O- Oakland Red Sox. That's two. It's not Cubs. Nope. Oh, that was his 2009. Do- oh, Dodgers and Twins. Twins. Dodgers and Twins. Dodgers and Twins. Correct. And got two more. Pitch the two more. Yes, one of them. <laughs> one of them was the Yankees. He did pitch very, Yankees? very briefly with oh, the Yankees, I, I, and he used to be a teammate of Andrew Heaney. He did pitch for the Angels as well during wow. that time period. Now, the reason why I bring it up is because we're going to be talking about Andrew Heaney. Now, Heaney had a shoulder injury in 2019, elbow in early 2019, shoulder issue in 2018, elbow in 2017. He pitched 180 innings, like I mentioned, only once in 2018. Um, in 21 innings in 2000, he had only 21 innings in 2017. His K rate has gone down. His ground ball rate has gone up. This is going to be his first true healthy offseason in 
I guess, since 2014. So he's a pitcher that people are not really that high on because they're always nervous about the injury aspect, but he's a possibility that he can turn into that quote-unquote Rich Hill guy that people are scared off by the injury, but you can get a lot of value out of him. So, Ruvain, how many, uh, who has more innings in 2021, Heaney or Minaya? Heaney or Minaya, I'm going to say probably Minaya, just because of track. Also, same thing, track record. I think he, Minaya will just have more innings. Um, Heaney, I still think he can probably get you 120 to 140 innings, maybe tops. But I can see Minaya, if he's healthy and, if his, like I said, if his velocity is up, he can give you 150 if the, if the um, athletics are willing to push him. ATC thinks that Heaney can go to 165 more than Minaya. What about you, Nick? Yeah, I think it's Heaney. Heaney had 180 in 2018 and then pitched the full 2020 with 67 innings. Yeah, sure, it was 95 in 2019. Uh, Manaya to me, is always – he's just trying to grind it out uh, a little bit more. And I feel like I, I understand Heaney's track record. I mean, he had six starts in 2016 and 17 combined. Uh, so I, I recognize this, um, but I still give the nod to Heaney. All right, so uh, Heaney – his strikeouts have bounced a little bit around, but uh, it's always been high, t- mid to high 20 percentage. Um, his swinging strike is fantastic. He sports somewhere between a 12 and 14 percent swinging strike rate annually. Uh, that's that's fantastic. He does give up homers, um, but in terms of value, look at his fantasy value since 2015 in a 15-team five by five format: three, minus two, minus six, two, minus two, minus one. Minus one. I read you Sean Manaya's before. So are you higher on Heaney than Manaya? Oh yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, I'm not. I'm not getting either one probably because I don't truly trust Heaney because uh, Heaney is so inconsistent and it's maddening because he can be so good. Potential. Uh, he, Potential. Yeah. It's it's so it's maddening. I call it a piece, a poor execution, awesome stuff. Um, where he has this really good changeup that misses a ton of bats. He has a curveball that he keeps down, and his sinker at times, like he can do the full triangle of pitch separation of sinkers up and changeups uh, arm side away from right handers and curveballs down and in glove side uh, in, uh, to to right handers. So it, it's all there. And seeing the fact that he's pretty much had a twenty six percent strikeout rate over his past three years is crazy good. Uh, but right, it is the home runs. That's why he has a four plus ERA along that way, about four or five, despite never being above a one point three WHIP. So he is actually helping you in two departments there: strikeouts and WHIP. It's just, of course, those home runs. Maybe the Denton ball does help him. Uh, I'm not gonna do that, by the way. I'm not gonna. Uh, we can't put any <laughs> weights on that Denton ball. But you know, whatever it could. Uh, but with Heaney, it's. I don't trust. I mean, that he's okay. They're both sidewinders, and I don't like sidewinders. I don't like guys who throw cross-body. They're both lefties doing this. It's kind of funny to me. And neither of them, I think, are able to have the fastball command they need to have to take the next step. The benefit for Heaney is that his changeup and curveball are both going to miss more bats than either of the offerings that Manaya has. Uh, he also throws, I think, a little bit harder with that sinker, and when he elevates, he has more success. Uh, but Manaya, for whatever reason, is able to get a little bit worse contact and avoid the the long ball. Um, I I think Heaney has a lot more of a ceiling to to go after. Uh, I understand not wanting to take the chance on him. Um, I'm probably not drafting either of these guys. Uh, but if I had to go with one, I would go with Heaney because you'll probably get more of an overall benefit. 
I think. All right. Heaney, of course, is going three rounds before Manaya. So uh, I, I think right. that uh, I don't think that he's three rounds better, even even in the 14th round. I, I think Manaya is the better value between the two of them. I will say, though, that I think that I would have more shares of Heaney in auction rather than draft because I don't, don't think I'm picking a pitcher, especially him in that range, when I think there's some better bargains a little bit later. But in an auction, I mean, if, if I get enough of a bargain off of his price, I, I'm good with. So I think Heaney is more of an auction. I'm not going to say target, but more of an auction possibility for me. Ruvain, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I'm so nervous about Heaney. Heaney's been on our team, me and you, Ariel. We've been on our team almost every single year. Not a lot and, of shares, though. Not uh, one share uh, here or there. Uh, but we always target him, and we always think, you know what? He's going to be a bargain. We're going to want to—he's he's, he's one, one of the biggest bargains almost every year. But he's never lived up to that hype, and that's the problem. He's never lived up to it. You know what? A lot of pitchers— Take time to get to their hype. Maybe if he has a full offseason, maybe he'll be the Dylan Bundy this year and he'll live up to the hype. Ooh. You never know. Ooh. Dylan Bundy needed to do a massive pitch change, a uh, pitch approach change. And that's we were yelling at it from afar for Baltimore and it finally happened in, in LA, thankfully. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I know Fast loves him, but uh, you know, everyone knows he's gonna throw a curveball on, on pitch <laughs> one now. The book go. is out on him, so because fast wrote that article. Uh, but actually, mm -hmm. staying with the Orioles, I'm shocked to see John <laughs> Means going two picks later than Andrew Heaney, and I would jump all over that at, at two fifteen overall. Yeah, Just um, out there. right. Okay, uh, let's move on to Jose Orchidi. Jose Orchidi, I was very high on him last year. Um, and he actually was pretty good in the limited, uh, he pitched 30 innings last year, limited, but he was worth an annual $4, which is a lot better than what, what you had to pay for him to get him. Um, I still like him this year, but uh, caution, he was not as good last year as some of his surface numbers indicated. Very, very lucky. BABIP 209, strand rate 87%. BABIP, of course, is normally 300 that means that there's far fewer things that actually went through from hits. Uh, that's that's luck. And 87% strand rate, so almost one, almost uh, nine out of ten runners who got on didn't score. Uh, the major league average is closer to 70, 75. Um, he only had 17 strikeouts and 30 innings pitched. He, ouch. I don't know if that's an injury thing or not, but that's not a good sign. And he had a very low ground ball rate. So I fear disaster could happen. And look at his interprojectional volatility. Seven? $7 is humongous. So projections don't even agree. There's parameter risk present. And his interprojectional skew is positive one. That means that most projections are actually down on him lower than the ATC average says. So looking at some of the risk factors and all that, even though he's about a $4 bargain in an auction setting, he's going in the 16th round, I think that there's more downside possible here. I might be shying away. What What about you, Nick? Oh, man, there's not enough of a sample to, to, to pull everything you need to know about Jose Arquiti, in my view. Okay. Uh, I think, I think Arquiti is way better. Um, than where he's getting drafted. It's kind of shocking because I'm not okay. really interested. I wouldn't call myself a fan of Jose Urquidy. I, I I get a sense that the general consensus in in like twelve teamers or so are going to be you're going to have someone in your league that's going to draft Jose Urquidy before I would. Uh, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, I'm seeing really quickly like the bat has him at 454. You guys have him at 415. Depth charts at 475. Seamer at 466. ERAs. I I mean yeah, it, it, 
Jose Urquidy is someone that could easily have a sub four year, right? It was weird to see both of his slider and curveball all of a sudden drop significantly in, in swing strike rate from near 20% rates in 2019. That seemed actually sustainable uh, for how he was performing and, uh, you know, watching those games. And they just kind of didn't work as well in 2020. I, we have such a small sample, and part of that sample is the weirdness of 2020, and we only have That's 41 fair. innings before that. I think it's fair. shifting everything in this weird direction for Jose Urquidy. I know it's weird to talk about this because I call it the playoff tax, but it, I think we've all forgotten about his weird old serious performance in 2019. Like, that is what Jose Urquidy can do. And I don't think that his talent level is so far away. Like, I don't think that was just one moment in the sun. He's just a bad pitcher otherwise. He's someone with a really good changeup. And his breaking stuff, as I mentioned before, has shown abilities to miss bats. And his fastball is good enough. Like, it, it's, it's all there. I think the only real concern that I have with Jose Urquidy is not the ratios. It's how much is he actually going to go? You know, uh, he's only combined for 70 innings in the majors from 2019 and 20. Sure, there were some playoff innings in there, too. So, so yeah, like 100 at most. It, it, it doesn't make for 170 innings this year, even if Dusty Baker is your manager. Uh, so, okay, 150. If I'm getting 150 of Jose Urquidy, I think those should be beneficial to you, even in a 12-team, let alone a 15. And 150 innings, well, is that going to be any different from Heaney and Manaya? I, I don't really think it's going to be so far off. So I, I would much rather have Urquidy. Uh, compared to those other two guys, I don't know where he's ranked right now in the in the things, but yeah, I figured. Yeah, I'd say that well, all these pitchers that I've said so far have roughly the same value, and they're all they're all bargains according to ATC. Um, I I I I like him better than Heaney, uh, for sure for this year. Um, just uh, th th there are a lot there are a lot of factors that that give me pause on Arkady. But before this before last year happened, I was really high on him. So. Uh, you know, I, I'm sort of in in the middle. I, I might it, it, again. It all depends on where he goes, and he's another guy that I think I might take a stab on him in an auction, but maybe not in a draft. Uh, what else are we missing, uh, Ruvain, from or the Urquidy puzzle? I'm throwing 2020, just like Nick said. I'm throwing 2020 okay. out the window, completely the out the window. Yes, yes, what, what? yes. Oh, and, because and, and, he, yeah. he started late. He started late because of COVID. Number one, number two, oh, yeah. those 30 innings. That was his spring training. He there's no okay. minor leagues. He couldn't ramp right, up. Right, so right. you know all that stuff. He can be a great great bargain plus remember going into the beginning of last year if the season would have started on time his role was in question they didn't even know what he wanted what they wanted him to do so in the spring training they were thinking about making him a starter putting long relief they had no idea what they were doing by the time he he got up i mean verlander was down already and they needed another starter so i think those 30 innings those were just his spring training innings and he was just getting warmed up the question again just like nick how many innings they're going to get at him i still think he can they may cap him at 140 150 and if the season starts late this is a guy to target because you know what you're going to get those full 140 150 and i think he's a great guy to have all right so i guess i should be trusting i should be trusting atc here more is what you're saying nick what I'm saying is you, you should trust Urvain more is what you should be doing. There, there well, you I'm, go. I'm just giving I'm just giving my opinion based on the fact that, you know, he's one of those guys he didn't miss time because of injury. He missed it because of COVID protocols. Right, it didn't even right, come out to say right, whether he even it. had it, but he was in had to be in isolation. He had problems with a visa. It was like a whole big mess. I yeah, I got this, a question. Whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. I have a question for Ruvain, actually. Um do you think that ha having COVID 
affected pitchers differently and maybe more than hitters because we saw, you know, uh, Eduardo Rodriguez, he didn't pitch at all. But we saw Freddie Freeman win the MVP. Of course, I'm only giving you two points of data, but maybe you have a better understanding as to is there a difference between pitchers and hitters for COVID? It's a difference between person to person, let alone pitchers to hitters. People people get this virus differently. It reacts to them differently. Um, people are getting the vaccines now. People are reacting differently to the vaccines. This is such an unknown that when it comes to pitchers or hitters act, reacting differently, it's a matter of the person. It's a matter of their of their background, of their nationality. It's a whole. It's, you're, you're opening a whole different bowl of wax when you're saying comparing pitchers to hitters. It has to do with their actual bodies as opposed to whether they're pitchers or hitters. Okay, Nick, uh, you know, the other thought? Yeah, the the time frame is different too. Um and the the fact that the pitchers need you know, they need to actually be pitching to be able to pitch as opposed to hitter, right. not to say that they don't have to have any rehab or anything like that. But yeah, you know, a lot of times you can just kind of be like, "All right, go back in there after a couple of days and they're back to normal, you know?" And a pitcher, no, you you see great example again John Means who got interrupted, had COVID, started late, a tragedy happened, his father passed away. And then had to ramp up again. We literally didn't see Means actually stretched out to be a pitcher until the last couple starts of the year. That was it. And, you know, missing time is like COVID is a good reason why a lot of these guys miss time. It, it, I think it does affect the the timelines uh, of pitchers more so than it does does hitters. All right. So I, I think I think that both of what you guys have said is correct. So it does affect the pitchers. But the reason is not because of the COVID. It's because of the timeline more than anything else. That, that, that's a great point. Yeah. Okay. Next pitcher is Eduardo Rodriguez, <laughs> who ATC sees as another another pretty good bargain here. Um, he's somebody that uh, look at his rotisserie values last couple of years: four dollars, six dollars, eleven dollars, and of course didn't pitch last year. He had two hundred plus innings in twenty nineteen with two hundred thirteen strikeouts. He's somebody that I really want to see what's going on in spring training just to give me the feeling that okay this looks like Eduardo Rodriguez right but look at his look at his uh career i mean the last two two years that he pitched ERA 38 382 381 um he's a guy who has a 25% strikeout rate for his career he had a 50% ground ball rate in 2019 and i think what's going on is in the market you are getting a you're getting a nice bargain because of the uncertainty of pitching, right? I mean, if he pitched even three innings last year, he probably would be going for a higher price. But the fact that you're getting uncertainty might allow you to get in for a discount over here. Now, to check the interprojectional metrics, standard deviation 2.8 means projections are very tight. Projections are pretty much in agreement that he's good and he's got a negative half skew which means that even with the projections there's some outlandish thing low most of the projections actually point up to him so this is somebody that the numbers seem to me is someone you can get that you're getting the discount because he didn't pitch um i don't see much downside here he's now had time to rest and the question is is he fully healthy and if he is i i think he's a fine guy to get i'll go to ruven first on him because it's an injury issue yeah i think the best comparison to uh to him would be cookie carrasco he had he hadn't he had the issue with cancer and it wasn't a pitching injury just like um uh Eduardo Rodriguez. it's not a it's not an it's not a physical pitching injury so it's a matter of how they're able to build up the stamina and come back and and like that so 
I have no doubt that they would not let him pitch unless he was 100% ready and he felt 100% ready to go through the daily grind of going through everything. So with that in mind and with the Boston Red Sox manager already saying that he's going to be ready for opening day, you know what? He, I think he is their number, he's a number one starter. Yes, Nate Eovaldi is questionably their number one starter, but I think he will be, this isn't going to be a bold prediction for this, I think he will be the Red Sox representative all-star weekend. Ooh, I like it. So uh, I, I guess you like him there. Uh, Nick, yes. do, do you agree with this assessment? I mean, I hope he's not the number one in Boston because that means he has to get the raise the second time instead of another start against Baltimore. That would be better. Uh, but I uh, <laughs> no, uh, I mean, Eduardo Rodriguez to me is uh, is kind of startling in so many ways. Um, the fact that his hit per nine has throughout his entire career been a low of eight two six and a high of eight eight eight. I mean, to be that consistent with hit per nine is just so unheard of, and, and that's just kind of who Eduardo is, and it's frustrating. So. If you remember in 2019, if you rostered Eduardo Rodriguez, there you were in the middle of August, you know, August 10th, where Eduardo had a 4-3-1 ERA and a 1-3-7 whip. And you weren't holding him anymore. You weren't rostering him after those four months. It was too much to handle, but then six of his next seven starts were amazing. And at the end of the year, it was a 3-8-1 ERA with a whip down four points to 133. And we look at it, they go, oh, man, yeah, Eduardo, wow, yeah, that was his best ERA all of a sudden. That kind of back and forth is typical with Eduardo Rodriguez. It's why he's always hovering a 130 whip. It's why he's kind of dancing with his four ERA. It's his changeup. Like, his changeup can miss so many bats, and when he's able to get those swings on it in a given day, he's going to have a good one. It depends on his four-seamer or sinker. depends on which one he's feeling that day. But whichever one, if one is actually working – then he can set up that changeup. He doesn't have a solid third pitch, though. The, the slider slash cutter, it does an okay job of stealing strikes. It doesn't miss bats, and it doesn't suppress contact well enough. So it, it's too volatile, and if it's volatility, I mean, I know this is a very black-and-white way of saying it and blunt, but if, if a guy's like volatile like this, you don't know which one's going to be the more beneficial half, the first or the second. And if it's the second, well, are you going to keep the faith after the first? I I mean, he's such a I, – I don't really see a season where Eduardo puts it all together um, and even throw in all of the, the concerns about his health. I mean, oh, my God, terrifying. Um, I, I hope he's okay. And, you know, those, those questions of, all right, how much is he going to pitch now? I mean, all of that's just extra haze into this that I – it just makes it more concerning to roster. So – I, I get it, 24-5% strikeout rate for Eduardo consistently there, and you kind of know what you're getting. Uh, but, man, he can he's one of those guys that can be a real headache in season. I'm going to say three things. First of all, you're wrong about people dropping him and uh, in 2019 because we played uh, – Ruben and I play in a 10-team league – and on the last game of the season, he pitched a pretty good outing. And we lost the league because he had <laughs> nine or ten strikes. Well, so but hold we're, on. we're hold aware of him. But but that yes, was after his six to seven start good streak. So if he was dropped, he was picked up again. That that could be. But I'm going to go with the damn that guy got me <laughs> attitude. Yeah, let, uh, us, let us have that. Come on. I'm so <laughs> sorry. 
The second thing I'm going to say is that ATC is projecting a nice bargain only with 150 innings pitched. It could be more. Um, so I, 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 the the production per inning pitched is excellent, and you get the value of the replacement level on top of that. So I kind of like him more for that. And the third thing I'm going to say is, reminds me the way you describe him is Marco Gonzalez. Incredibly consistent. Oh, man. Half-half, but he always ends up getting somewhere in the middle for a good ratio, and he ends up pitching a lot of wins. He had 19 wins in 2019, 13 wins in 2018. This is Marco Gonzalez. Marco Gonzalez was a $20 pitcher last year. I this is the kind of guy that he he won't be great he but he'll end up getting the ten dollar value year in year out or at least high sevens eights nines but he, what I'm saying is he's not he's going in the eighteenth round he's a lot better than an eighteenth round pitcher he's not a a, a a number seven starter on your club he has the potential and that's what he, where he's going now so for the price and everything I'm okay with some of the inconsistencies. And, of course, you know, he might be one of the guys that you sit half the time. Maybe, if you want to use him that way. Uh, I, I like him. I, I'm not worried about the inconsistency because I think he's a guy like Marco Gonzalez that he'll even out, and, and, and you'll be happy if you just stuck with him the whole year. So two quick points here. Uh, first of all, Marco Gonzalez, do not get me started on Marco Gonzalez, but I do recognize 15-teamers. Marco Gonzalez certainly is valuable. Uh, I would say in a 12-teamer guy that's probably going to hover like a four ERA and a you know questionable whip isn't necessarily something that you want to go and get. You can kind of find it through the year on the waiver wire, but all right, there's a chance that Marco Gonzalez is somehow able to repeat 2020. So, okay, I get that part. Um, the other thing is you have him projected, let's say, yeah, 150 innings, right? 152. I this is this is something I, I talked a lot about last year. Um, if you notice, I have a lot of terms for things because I like terms. I think they're fun, and they there's a lot of different mindsets you have. And one is well, what we call a hipster, a headache-inducing pitcher that stifles the entire <laughs> roster. And what they do is, I was saying this for Lance McCullers last year. Well, Lance McCullers, oh yeah, we only projected 140 innings or so because he was coming off of Tommy John. When is he getting them? Is it going to be four months straight and then they shut down Eduardo Rodriguez? Probably not, right? It, it, it's going to be the entire year, but maybe it's a skip start over here or you know he's getting pulled after five innings instead of going off to six or so on. It, and you have to – I noticed you mentioned like a like a replacement player. Are you going to get a replacement player? Because you might have to hold him through the full year to get that 150. Um, you know, but again, it's about the understanding of, of projections, how they're formed. I think that the 152 is not because he thinks he's going to be start here, miss a start here. I think it's just more the binary, uh, is he going to pitch or is he not going to pitch? We don't know it, so we'll just project something in the middle. It's different than it's different than Kershaw, who's going to get hurt at a certain point, and he will come back, and, and you'll get that there. I think it's just a question of Rodriguez, is he going to have it or not, and projections are just conservative. Interesting. Right? Okay. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't know how many innings I project for Eduardo. I can see the Red Sox being careful to some degree after his, his health concerns and the fact that, you know, we talk about guys opting out in 2020, but thinking that they're still practicing and everything. Eduardo wasn't. Eduardo was recovering. I uh, so I wonder if he's has the stamina to go 
very long. I don't. I legitimately have no idea how many innings I'm projecting or yeah. like envisioning for Eduardo. Again, it's you got to check spring training for him. It, it, to me, sure. it, Great it, point. and you'll and you'll know right away. You'll know right away if if it's working or not. I I think with him. Uh, but here's the chance to get in at a potential bargain here. And it's the 17th round. It's not the end of the world if you had to cut him. Uh, how about uh, this guy Ryan Yarbrough? We talked about <laughs> earlier why, why we picking Rays, but uh, he comes out as a nice not. Small two three dollar ish bargain here, according to ATC. Uh, my problem with him is that he averages less than five innings per start. But I could have just said he's on the Rays, and you would know that. You cannot count on wins. He happened to have gotten sixteen wins in twenty eighteen. That's interesting. Um, his strikeouts are meh, seven K per nine. It's twenty percent strikeout rate, um, which is interesting because his swinging strike rate is somewhere between 10 and 13% over the last couple of years, so you would think he would have more strikeouts. Now, he has a pretty good ground ball rate. We're talking over 40% ground ball rate uh, and a low walk rate. So maybe it's possible that he likes to induce contact, so instead of putting the put-away pitch, his put-away pitch is to induce a, an out, uh, and that's how he's successful. Um, I, I'll, I'll let you talk to that, Nick, but... Uh, I like him as a pitcher. He's a great stabilizer of ratios. You, you'll you get something for uh, – I'm projecting 423, but he's shown every every year to be even better than that. Whip, pretty decent, 1-2 uh, or so. Um, he's going 17th round. I think his profile is somewhat like Sean Manaya's. And, again, I'm one of those guys who like the ratios, who like the stability of his projection. Um, and, you know, when you put together Yarbrough, Manaya, you put together Eduardo Rodriguez, who's going oh, about the same round, maybe Urquidy is going a little bit earlier, but close, you have what we call in the show a hot spot, where there's five, six pitchers around the same round late-ish, that it's not about taking somebody at that spot. You're going to get somebody even a round or two later. So just be aware of the pocket of undervalued players in the spot. You may not get any one of them. Maybe somebody loves Jose Arquiti. Somebody loves Andrew Heaney. But, again, it's an ADP. So if three people are higher, that means three people are going to have to be even lower, and that means even a bigger bargain. So uh, I, I like Ryan Yarbrough for the for the ratios. I don't need that strikeout guy. I don't need the Chris Archer type. That's how I like to play. Uh, let's go to let's go to Nick first. Uh, what do you think first about the fact that his swing strike rate is high, but his strikeout rate is low? Is is my explanation correct in your mind? I mean, I think it's because it was fifty six innings, um, and Yarbrough has unfortunately not been. I mean, I think this is finally the year that the race say, okay, fine, fine, you get to start all the time. No more of this opener stuff. Like you get to start. I'm crossing my fingers as I say that. But they need someone else outside of Glasgow to do that, right? Please let it be the Fratty Pirate. Please let Yarbrough do that. <laughs> the Fratty and Pirate. I think he's I think he's kind of like Kyle Hendricks in some ways of a potential to go six seven. There was actually a, a stretch. It's kind of funny to me. It's so raised. He had four starts in a row in 2019 that were at least six innings. Two of them were seven. But, of course, after the first one of, like, 7.1 innings, he then came in relief for 3.2 until he went and did the other ones again because he's a part of the Rays. But he has that potential. It's it's a cutter and a changeup that effectively misses the barrel. That's what they do. And it's not fast. It doesn't look pretty. It's part of the Chad Bradford experience of not looking like your conventional starter. So I think people overlook Yarbrough a little bit. 
but I am I imagine that Yarbrough is a very cheap entity come entering this year, and he hasn't put a whip of one thirty or higher in his career. Last two years combined are about a one fifteen. It was a one whip in two thousand nineteen and one nineteen in two thousand twenty. Strikeout rate is probably going to be around twenty percent, but if you expect a one twenty five whip and four ERA, I mean, great. I, I'm stoked about that from Yarbrough. Sure, it might be a little headache-inducing about is he starting, how long is he going necessarily. But I, as far as the other guys around him, volume shouldn't be much of an issue. It should be like 160, 170 maybe um, as they keep relying on him this season. Just don't expect like a 25% K rate and you're fine. Yeah, he had one win last year. One. Uh, move ah, in. whatever. <laughs> Thoughts on the what, – what is he? The, the, the... Fratty Pirate. He's the a frat- yar, bruh. I love that. Well, you're talking about in the in- the innings. He started a total, I think, nine games last year. He had 11 appearances. Of those nine games, he did go five or more innings, six out of the nine. And one of those starts, he was coming off an injury. That's why he only pitched three innings. So I think they're trying to trend him up. He does have, on average, about 140 innings pitched per season. So there's no reason to doubt that he can do 150, maybe even 160, if the Rays will allow it. He is one of their... One of the three, I would say, true starters who are healthy right now. He's he, uh, he's uh, of the top three of there of the of the three-headed monster of I guess we're gonna call it three-headed monster of Glass <laughs> now Archer and Yarbrough. Like three-headed monster, I don't know. Um, and another guy we're gonna mention uh, right after this, and a, a rookie coming up. He, I think he'll next one we're gonna talk about Josh Fleming. He's gonna have even I think even less innings than Yarbrough. So if you want to trust one of these guys, Yarbrough will be that. ERA and whip stabilizer that you can afford to have on your team so that you can throw those two-star pitchers in later to get those strikeouts and not have to worry about the ERA and whip. Josh Fleming, you mentioned here, ATC usually isn't very high on guys with not that much experience, yet it's showing as a $3 player, and he's going in the 30th round of NFBC draft, so we're talking like the last bench player, maybe. He's not even taken in them. He's going pick 442. Um, <laughs> I'll start with you, Nick. Any thoughts on a guy who had 64% ground ball rate and pretty high ground ball rate in the minors? What do you think? I mean, Josh Fleming, oh, I have such an affinity for Josh Fleming because I love to see guys who can throw, who have amazing pitch separation. Fleming is able to put his cutter glove side all the time and then put his sinker arm side all the time. He's a lefty. Uh, I remember when he came up, and uh, I think it was the second start of the season, was against Miami, had six strikeouts, and I was like, okay, I'm going to take a look at this. And it, it's just, it's glorious. You see the strike zone plot. Literally, it's just yellow on one side and orange on the other. He's just so good at that. But I don't think the Rays are going to let him be like a six-inning guy. Uh, this is the guy that will get opened all the time. And they'll be happy to get like four good innings, four or five out of Josh Fleming, who's able to just go sliders glove side, sinker's arm side, and that's kind of it. He calls it a day. So I don't think that's someone you want to chase. I don't think it's something that speaks to, uh, you know, enough of a ceiling in a 12-teamer. Uh, for you to go after 15-teamer, I think you're still going to be wanting more out of that roster spot than what Josh Fleming is going to give you. But I don't know. I kind of dig it. I like. I, I really hope it works. I hope he can just do those two things, like clockwork, and and have success. It's just, yeah, he's on the race. He's not going to get the proper opportunity you want. 
I have him down for 120 innings. So, I mean, if he gets 140 innings, he could be worth $7. I have him as a $3 player. Um, there, There's upside here, uh, no doubt. Ruben? Uh, Josh Fleming's last start of the season, he had a career-high six-inning game. He had a career-high 90 pitches. That's his career-high. They have to... If, if, if they're going to compete and they see in the, in the AL East and they see that he's able to pitch against the AL East and actually do well against them, you know what? They have to they have to pull back a little bit. I know I, I'm, I'm still upset about them pulling Blake Snell because he was pitching such a good game. But sometimes you do analytics to the point where you shoot yourself in the foot. And this is a point where, you know what? If you, you have a window to win, they have a window to win. They have to take it. Josh Fleming is right now the number five starter. And you know what? If you have the last pick and you need a pitcher, he's the guy to take because you know what? He's going to be on a good team. He's going to get you some wins. He may not pitch that much, but he also, his ERA is not going to kill you. His whip is not going to kill you. And you know what? There's a chance that he may turn out to be the number four starter on the team. And you know what? The number four starter on the team on the Rays is a lot better than the number four starter team on most other teams in baseball. So I would take that. I do want to mention one thing here. Um, that final start of the year, six innings, five strikeouts against the Phillies. That was on the last day of the regular season, and Fleming was not on the ALDS roster. So the Rays just kind of were like, all right, go ahead, Fleming. Go 90 pitches. We're not going to micromanage you today. We don't. You're doing great. Sure. Well, uh, the entire bullpen could use some rest. You don't need to be saved up for anything else. Just go ahead. Um, so I do worry. I want that to be the thing consistently, uh, but I have some hesitation uh, leaning on that. Very good point. Uh, the the ground ball rate though means he might be an effective pitcher in terms of, uh, uh, sorry, not effective, efficient. Efficient meaning uh, a few pitches per inning uh, because he's generating all the ground balls. So maybe he lasts a little bit longer than you might think. But yeah, that's a good point about about the uh, the fact that he really isn't on the postseason roster there. Um, didn't realize that. Uh, yeah, let's you know wait and see with these with these guys. Uh, but more importantly, Nick, you need a nickname for Josh Fleming. Flaming, I, 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 I do. Uh, oh man, I don't want to give him a nickname yet because <laughs> it, it can go two different ways, and I want it to be the good way. <laughs> okay, got it. Jo uh, Fosh Jemming. There we go. Let's go with that. Fosh Jemming. All right, because like, he's like, pitching like, well. He he's jemming. Just 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 like Jarek Dieter, right? There it is. <laughs> All right, we'll do a couple of mailbag questions here. Um, uh, the first two are very similar to each other, so I'll just read them back to back. Jared asks, do reports of the dead and ball in 2021 make later round flyball pitchers like Boyd and Ray more interesting than they would have been before the news? Also, Nick asks, uh, with the news of the MLB deadening the ball, are you moving pitching up or down in general? I feel like hitting should be moved up since there may not be as big a gap between the tiers of starting pitchers anymore. Two pretty good questions. We didn't talk about it earlier. Uh, you hinted at it earlier, but, uh, yeah, we're getting reports that the ball could be deadened, which means that balls won't travel as far. Some people are going to be uh, hitting fewer homers, which means that pitchers might be better because the balls will be caught. Um, thoughts on this, Nick? We have no idea, and it's hard to make any sort of adjustments based on it. Um, I like the idea of fewer home runs because I inherently root for the pitcher. I feel like hitters can just be cardboard cutouts, just sitting there in the plate, whatever. Don't care about you. It's all about the pitcher. So fewer home runs means more good things happen to my guys. Uh, 
But yeah, it's uh, that's a good point. But hey, Matthew Boyd, that was a huge home run problem. Same with Robbie Ray. Well, with Boyd, I think I'd put more weight on the fact that he was injured through last year and he didn't really have a slider. That was his major pitch for ages. And with Robbie Ray, well, he had a new arm circle and then he reverted from that new arm circle that made us excited because then it didn't work. So he reverted it when he got to Toronto. And I think those factors are a larger weight. Uh, it could make a difference. And I think it's a good point saying, oh, if there are fewer home runs, how does it change the landscape? Probably the guys that are de facto home run hitters actually get a boost because you'll see fewer wall scrapers, essentially. Um but honestly, I'm not really making any drastic changes. I think it's something that we just don't know how to wait. We don't know how it's going to affect things. Uh, so I wouldn't really use that over all the other information that we have already. Yeah, I agree. It's very hard to discern right now. Um, I will say that you'll know very quickly, we're, we're talking about just like a week or two into the season, whether whether the dead and bull has an effect and what it is, and you'll be able to make changes there. But it's it's really hard to know what the story is. The I think that the, whether there's a, DL, a DH in the National League or not, that's going to have a much bigger effect. You're going to see National League ERAs could be a difference of a half a point for pitchers. That's much more important to me than, than the dead and balls. Now, as to the point as to whether you should be moving pitching up or down, um, I don't think so. I think that unless you can discern a real relativity between pitchers, and I think there's, the relativities are more on the hitter side than the pitcher side. Um, again, you know, if, you're, if your whole league is not changing the values of pitchers, if you're suddenly changing the value of the pitchers, you're not doing anything because all you're doing is saying that I'm valuing hitting more so you'll be better in hitting and you'll be worse in pitching because you're going to acquire fewer pitchers. Uh, I don't think it should make any difference in terms of what you do, uh, hitters versus pitchers. Ruben? Yeah, I don't think it's going to make a difference either where you should take them. I mean, when you're comparing like Boyd and Ray, all I care about in Boyd and Ray are their strikeout rates. Last year, Boyd was had like an only like close to an eight and eight point nine five, which is low for him. Ray, he still was he still was getting those strikeouts. And but you know what? For both of them, their home run for flyball rate didn't really go up that much the last couple of seasons. So it's not like they were giving up more home runs. It's that they were having less swings and misses, in my opinion. Now, as whether they're actually going to do this, I think it's not in the interest of baseball to do this because the home runs are sexy, offense is sexy, and if they want more people to watch baseball, they're going to keep the offense the way it is. You know, they have a better chance of, of changing something if they want to maybe move the mound back or raise the mound or something like that, but deading the balls, the players that today are bigger and stronger than they were a couple of years ago, and just deading the balls is not going to do that much. So what, instead of hitting it 450 feet, you're going to hit it 420 feet? I, you know, it's still going to be a home run, and a lot of these guys are still going to be a home run, so that's my opinion. I mean, for some of those, but for, for the ones who have a much lower average fly ball distance, I think it could make the difference of could be 20%, 30% of their homers. Depends depends who you are, right? Stanton's but but, but again, base, baseball wants offense. That's how they bring, quote-unquote, fans to the seats. That's how they get people to watch. And you know what? It's in the best interest of baseball not to do this, In actually. Maybe. Um not, I kind of think baseball wants it. I kind of think they want more balls in play. But and the problem, though, with, with, with the deadening ball is, you, okay, you're solving the homer problem. You're putting more balls in play. But you're not solving the there's too many strikeouts and walks in the game, right? You're, you, you, you know, the problem is that you, you want batters not to strike out. You know, the shift. You're not doing anything. People are just going to pile up on you on one side, right? Thoughts on this? Or hope, hopefully you could just beat the shift. Exactly. Yeah. That's what I, that's that's what I was right. going to say, but you beat me to it, yes. There you oh, go. I knew I knew it was in there, Ravane. Yeah. 
All right. Uh, it's getting late here, so we'll do one more question uh, from Jacob. He says, I had to pay $42 for Bueller last season just to get that one ace. He plays in an auction league. Is there a point now with the supply and demand of ace starting pitcher that you're just tapping out? Or should you go all in to get that anchor starting pitcher? Uh, my league has a few heavy spenders in it. It's a 5 by 5 head-to-head league. So the question here, I think, Nick, is, um, you know, when is enough too much? Like, yes, people are paying more, and yes, you should pay more than in the past. But, you know, are you paying $50 for a starting pitcher in a standard 5 by 5 league? Like, when is the point where you say, the heck with it? I, 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 don't, I don't need that ace. It, let's just let the people pay that much. I mean, you know me. I'm not going to pay $50 for Shane Bieber. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait on the guys that I like. Um, I, I am in the camp that the, uh, the discount starters, if you just go after those, you can formulate an amazing rotation. If you go for the guys that are generally ranked around 10 to 30, 35, I mean, I can extend that to 40, but in an auction league, I mean, you can really like, if you're spending $50 on, on a Bieber, you can get what three of those three guys instead for, for that cost or so that will be amazing for you. Um, I, I would much rather go that route instead. Right. Ruvain? I actually think that those players, the top pitchers, could be worth it. I mean, just look at last year. According to the ATC uh, calculations, uh, Shane Bieber was worth 48 last year. Okay? You Darvish was worth 37. You have uh, DeGrom was only worth 28. And Cole is only 29. But over a course of a full season, they may have hit a higher level. Trevor Bauer on the Reds was worth 41 last year. So the pitchers at the higher level, they do have the opportunity to make their value. Do Is it the right thing? Not necessarily because pitchers are very different creatures than hitters. And what you're going to get one year, you're not going to get it enough from another. I mean, who, I mean, some people can predict that you Darvish was going to step up to the way he was, but who could have predicted a pitcher who had a career ERA in the fours would turn, would turn into a, a multi, a 40 year million dollar contract for the Dodgers. You know, you just can't predict that if something turns on, you don't necessarily need to have that $42 pitcher. You can get that middle tier pitcher. You can get that Kenta Maeda who was worth $33 last year, get him a lot cheaper and you can still have a profit there. Yeah, so I, I, I'll tell you this, Jacob, uh, asking the question here. Um, you know, my research has shown that getting that high-priced pitcher has been a pretty good return on investment over, over the uh, time, where a lot of pitchers in the middle rounds really don't return their value. Here's the thing. It really depends on what the market does. If you have pitchers, in, players in your league where the pitchers are going $40, but the next tier of pitchers are going in the 30s, um, you're better off spending the 40 to get that extra bump rather than taking a low-end starting one pitcher in the 30s. If your league doesn't pay a lot for pitching in general, and you can get those guys, as Nick was talking about, paying $15, $20, $24, and you don't have to jump into a high thing and where you can get a nice quantity, then no, you don't want to pay the top. So there's no be-all, end-all answer, really. It's not a cop-out to tell you that there's no one answer and that there's no limit, but it really depends on what everybody else is doing, right? If everybody's paying $40 for a pitcher, you are better off paying the extra $3 for it, right? Again, it's all pricing relative. If you don't and everybody's getting good pitching, well, you're left with no pitching, right? You, you, you're going to come up with the ends and the scraps. 
so again, you want to pay better rel- relative to everybody else. You want to get a bargain on people, and it really matters what everybody else is doing. So again, we're you know in an auction, you don't have to throw out people at the top. You can throw out people in a different tier, and I recommend doing that. Do throw out somebody that you're interested in in a second tier, in a third tier. See how the prices are going in the market. When you do that, you'll get information about how the market is playing, and you'll know. Okay, if I throw out uh, an SP two, and hmm, you know, people are overpaying for SP two. You know, you can throw more money out on an SP one. If you see the bargain is present right there in the SP two, just grab that, and then you don't have to pay the the uh, SP one price if they're going ridiculous. So, you know, a lot of it has to do with you very quickly gauging what the market is in an auction, and you do that by ordering your nominations correctly. Hope that's good advice for you. All right, well, that is the end of our show. Um, this was a good one. I, I feel like we we had um, you know Nick coming from a different perspective than us in some ways, but the, the the wealth of information you have analyzing pitchers, knowing what they throw and what works and not is just invaluable, and that makes you one of the top experts in in this industry. So thank you for coming on the show, Nick. Wow, that is some ridiculous praise that I do not deserve. Uh, thank you so much uh, for having me here, and I mean you guys do amazing work, Ariel. Of course, again, congratulations. Uh, baseball article of the year. Amazing. Ah, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. Really, really well deserved, of course. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, it's great being here. Hope you enjoy 6.0. Um, I, I, I think you will. That, I, I know that's my bold prediction for 2021. I think you're going to enjoy Petrolis 6.0. Um, uh, yes, definitely. And uh, you can follow Nick uh, on Twitter at Petrolis. That makes it pretty convenient, right? There we go. Right now, not too bad. There you go. Uh, any other than six and PitchCon, do we miss anything else that's going? It sounds like quite a bit, actually. Yeah, it's a lot. I'll be doing a lot of Twitch streaming. So go to Twitch.tv/PitcherList, and especially in season, if you want to ask me questions and see the process at work, well, you know where to find me. Very cool, Ruben. You can follow me on Twitter at MLB Injury Guru, where I tweet out the injury updates. My first weekly article actually came out this past week from Rotobowler discussing Ooh. the injuries. And I actually want to back up one thing. I want to apologize to Rafael Devers and Xander Bogarts. I think they have a better chance of making the All-Star team than Eduardo Rodriguez. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. And uh, again, I'm Ariel Cohen. You can follow me on Twitter at ATCNY. Check out my new article on Fangraphs today about uh, interprojectional volatility. Uh, you will be very happy that you did. The ATC projections are on Fangraphs. They are on Rotobowler. They are on RotoChamp and on Sportsline. We're getting everywhere. The best projections in the business, so says me. Um, and, uh, and, of course, you can listen to me right here every week on the Beat the Shift podcast. There we go. All right, once again, many thanks for Nick Pollock from PitcherList for joining us on the show and from all of us here at Beat the Shift. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Beat the Shift podcast presented by Fangress. Follow us on Twitter at Beat underscore shift underscore pod.